In the late 1960s, the Brooklyn neighborhood of Ocean Hill-Brownsville was at the center of a movement demanding community control of public schools. The plan for community control was get people on the local school board that lived in the community, had children in the community. Everybody in that community began to play a role in the schools. The school became the focal point of the community. Ocean Hill-Brownsville was not just an instance of confrontation that was in fact a citywide symbol. At least on paper, some might argue that they got what they were fighting for. The state created 32 local school boards with something resembling independent decision-making. But 32 years later, it was all undone. Today, as the state now prepares to do away with those boards, Ocean Hill-Brownsville is quiet. This is WNYC reporter Beth Fertig in July 2002. In fact, it seems the school boards are going out with barely a whimper. Whereas the community school board of District 23 is on record to support the maintaining of school boards as a democratically elected governing structure. Last week, members of Community School Board 23 in Ocean Hill-Brownsville passed a resolution opposing the new state law which abolishes local boards. Only 20 people attended the meeting in a school auditorium. And all came for other items on the agenda. How did this happen? How did we go from tens of thousands of people taking to the streets to demand control of their schools to, apparently, nobody giving a damn? You're listening to School Colors, a podcast from Brooklyn Deep about how race, class, and power shape American cities and schools. When New York City's local school boards were abolished, it was based on a couple of key ideas. First, that 30 years of educational failure had proved that communities simply could not be trusted to govern their own schools. And second, that, well, parents were not really interested in governing their schools anyway. But the truth is more complicated. In the wake of the 1968 teachers' strikes, black people in central Brooklyn continued to fight for self-determination in education, both inside and outside of the public school system. Despite the flaws and compromises built into the local school boards, a generation of black educators still tried to make them work, even as the city was crumbling all around them. At the same time, others tried to build something new. They started a pan-African cultural center called the East, and a school, Uhura Sasa Shule, an inspiring model of how a village can educate and raise its own, free of bureaucracy and anti-blackness in the classroom. Both the East and the local school board have been gone for a long time now, Neither one of them gets talked about much these days, and neither one was perfect. But both of them gave the lie to an idea that is deeply baked into American political culture. An idea that was used to justify throwing democracy and public education out the window in favor of mayoral control. Not just in New York, but in big cities that serve mostly students of color all over the country. The idea that non-white people are not fit for self-government. So, what happened to Ocean Hill-Brownsville? Well, the place called Ocean Hill-Brownsville became part of District 23. But so much of the political energy from the movement called Ocean Hill-Brownsville really flourished next door in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Bed-Stuy, District 16, is where we started School Colors in Episode 1. And in this episode, we come home. It was about the black experience. It was about revolution. It's about hiring people because there was no industry. Everyone is just in survival mode. It is just crazy. Kids are going to school for half a day. The government was hostile. The buildings are falling down. The pressure that we went through as children 
killed many of us. One of the board members objected to that, and then she came over and she hit me. This is what goes on when you let them run the schools. The public has clearly said enough. Very often the wise are not powerful, and the powerful are not wise. This is Mark Winston Griffith. And Max Friedman. Welcome back to School Colors. The system created in 1970, in the wake of Ocean Hill-Brownsville, was known as decentralization. Now, on paper, decentralization might sound like just a more bureaucratic way of saying community control, but they were not the same thing. Community control advocates wanted the city divided up into as many as 64 districts. Instead, we got 32, half as many districts, twice as big as Ocean Hill-Brownsville had been. Community control advocates wanted each local school board to control budgeting, curriculum, and personnel for every school in their district. Instead, the Central Board of Education still controlled finance, operations, and construction. Local school boards had jurisdiction over elementary and junior high schools, but not high schools. Local school boards had the power to hire and fire principals and superintendents, but not teachers. All the rules for teachers were dictated by a central union contract and a central licensing exam. The settlement was far from what we wanted. I would say, let's say we wanted 100%, we got 49. Leslie Campbell was a firebrand social studies teacher in Ocean Hill-Brownsville and the union's number one boogeyman. And everybody forgot about uh, the struggle as they went about the mad scramble of getting, you know, what that 49% was to give. The mad scramble for jobs, I mean, who's going to be the new principals, assistant principals, superintendents, assistant superintendents. Secretaries, janitors, cafeteria workers. Maybe the local school boards couldn't hire and fire teachers, but they controlled a lot of jobs. And those jobs could be like catnip to local politicians. But we'll get back to that later. Decentralization was a set of compromises designed to diffuse an explosive situation. Some people were willing to accept those compromises, and some were not. Leslie Campbell was not. Well, I I felt I was part of the freedom struggle of black people. I was part of the ongoing struggle of the black community to establish itself, to uh, obtain self-determination, to obtain dignity, and to obtain liberation. After being dismissed from his teaching position in Ocean Hill-Brownsville, Campbell didn't stay in the system for long. I, I felt like, hey, I did what I had to do, and it's time for me to move on. I left for Ocean Hill, and I started a school. Campbell pooled his money with a few members of the African American Students Association, and they acquired an abandoned building at 10 Claver Place in Bedford-Stuyvesant. It was an unremarkable three-story row house without heat or running water, but they got skilled workers from the community to donate their services to fix it up. And they called this place the East, as in the opposite of the West, positioned against the dominant and oppressive Western culture. In that spirit, Les Campbell changed his name to G2WayUC, meaning Big Black in Swahili. That's what we'll call him from this point forward. The East officially began operation on December 31st, 1969. And right away, black people from across Brooklyn and beyond were drawn there. People like Fella Barcliffe. I had such horrible school experiences. It is just the worst. I I feel terrible even talking about it. so bad. Fella Barcliffe was born in the Deep South, but she grew up in Bed-Stuy. She had always been a big reader, so when she got to high school, Fella, known as Francis at the time, was placed in the quote-unquote academic program. But she noticed right away that she stuck out. It was mostly all white kids in there. And I, at some point, I think in my sophomore year, I I actually explored the school and found out that all the black girls was on another floor. 
and the sound was so loud you couldn't hear because they were all typing at once. This was the so-called commercial program, where the girls were being trained to work as secretaries. And then all the black boys were on the lower floor, like almost in a basement area, playing cards, shooting dice, sleeping. You know, it was just a nightmare. When I saw what was really happening, it was like, wow, this is my school? I mean, I remember one white teacher that would walk past me and literally flinch, like she hated me. And it wasn't anything I had done. It wasn't personal, it was just racism. I just tried to get through it. You know, I just did what was expected or asked of me, and otherwise I was in my own world, where I kind of lived until I got out of there. Luckily, by the time she got out of there, it was 1969, and there was the East. I went down there every weekend for the music, and I lived right there in Bed-Stuy, so it was like I found myself as a black person, and now I'm going there. So people would be in all kinds of attire, doing all kinds of interesting things with themselves, their body, their hair, their clothes. And of course, there was the food, which was, I mean, people loved the jollof rice, and you know, there was some interesting cooks up there. The most wonderful thing of all was the music. The East became a real destination, especially for jazz artists. All the musicians that you could think of. Max Roach, Sun Ra, Sonny Rollins, Archie Shepp, Betty Carter, Nina Simone. Pharaoh Sanders recorded a live album from the East. That's what you're hearing right now. And then I wanted to keep coming and not paying, so I started to work there as a waitress. And then just gradually got more and more into the whole East vibe because G2 would talk every weekend. He would take a moment or two to, not a moment or two, a half an hour or so to like talk about Black people, black education, what we needed for our children, what we needed for our community, how we had to come out of that thinking that integration was so important and that we can do it ourselves. And, you know, he was creating a school and that school was going to be a school for liberation. And and so after a while, when they started the school, I was right there. Uhuru Sasa Shule launched in February 1970 with just two full-time teachers. One was Fela Barcliffe. The other was Adeyeme Bendele. Lumumba Bendele is his son. You know, particularly coming out of Ocean Hill-Brownsville, folks realized that we had the ability to actually educate our children. We, we did it, but more important, or equally as important, we had the responsibility to do it. We could not continue to, to rely on the public school system to do that. It was perfect. It was perfect for my mind, body, and spirit to be able to be someplace where I could feel like a human, where I could make a real contribution, and where I could use my mind, you know, in a way where I could feel like I was someone. So, yeah, that's what G2 offered me. And it was a good offer. I took him up on it. At first, Uhuru Sasa was just a part-time program for high school students like Cleaster Cotton, who had been in G2's class in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. Uhuru Sasa Shule means Freedom Now School. And at that building is where we got to continue our education about who we are, culture, everything. By this time, she was going to public high school in Manhattan, but... At the end of the day, we could not wait to get on the train, to come back to Brooklyn, to go to Uhuru Sasa. By the spring, Uhuru Sasa was running a full-day elementary school. It was so much fun because we had 
100% latitude. <laughs> it was it was about the black experiences. It was about, I hate to say it, but no, I don't hate to say it. It was about revolution. And we were to create our own way of delivering that message to the young people that we served. You know, it was when we say it's an African-centered education, when we were taught math, we were taught math, not only from a historical perspective about who the first mathematicians were, but literally using content around math problems that we recognize and can relate to. We were the first children to receive the seven principles of blackness, which, you know, as the seven days of Kwanzaa. And it is the seven principles that is the foundation of everything. The East was part of a national network of pan-African nationalist institutions that began popping up in the late 60s and early 70s. And the East was more than just the jazz club in the school. The East had Uhuru Sasa Shule, Imani Daycare, Black News, a bookstore, a printing service, a recording studio, the East Caterers, Sweet East Restaurant, Kununuwana Food Cooperative, Mavazi Clothing Cooperative, the Evening School of Knowledge, the Universal Temple of Thoughts. They had a farm in Guyana. They had a political party. And all of these were established in just the first three years. This was only possible because of tremendous effort by a group known as the East Family. East family members made collective decisions for and dedicated every working hour to the organization. People who identify themselves and who identified as East family members had one unifying factor. They all worked their asses off. (laughs) Everybody was expected to put in what they called Kazi, Swahili, for work. That was really rooted in self-sacrifice. Like, your commitment to the liberation movement was based on how much you can sacrifice. Sacrifice your personal space, sacrifice your personal life, sacrifice your sleep, your energy, all of that. Sometimes the idea of family could be taken quite literally. Everybody is really doing an intentional move to reclaim their African identity, rejecting Eurocentric values, cultures, norms. Polygamy was very common. We talk about having two, I had two mothers. I thought it was normal. And sometimes the expectation of sacrifice went a little too far, certainly too far for fellow Barcliffe. You know, they had all kinds of interesting things happening there. But then they came out with this decision that they were going to connect every single woman with some man or some family. And the women weren't going to be able to choose whose family they were going to be matched up with. But every single woman was going to be put in a family with someone of the hierarchy's choice. So, so there was that. <laughs> there, 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 there was that. Understanding at this time, this was many people's like introduction to what was presented as African traditions. Presented as African traditions, often by African Americans who didn't necessarily have much experience on the continent. What that African tradition was going to look like was certainly going to be revolving around the existence in the life of of men, (laughs) of black men, uplifting, preserving, supporting black men. You know, even if you're talking about supporting and protecting black women so that they can protect, support black men. (laughs) So there's no question about it. Patriarchy is the order of the day. Some men no doubt took advantage of this extended family structure to have access to more women. But we also heard stories of powerful women who resisted their given roles and pushed back against patriarchy in the East. But Fella said that when she found out she was going to be assigned to some man in the East family, she didn't push back. 
She just straight out left. The next day, I handed in my resignation. <laughs> and I was like, okay, it's time to go back to college and get my degree. Right. I'm not ready for this. So. In truth, Uhuru Sasashule served relatively few children, especially at the beginning. So it's important to point out that most black families in Bed-Stuy had little choice but to rely on the public school system, like it or not. The vehicle for those families to exert power in the public schools was supposed to be the local school board. But the way the school boards were set up, most school board members across the city were backed up by a group which already had money and infrastructure to get the word out. The teachers' union, anti-poverty organizations, various democratic political clubs, the Catholic Church. Sometimes these different machines worked together. Sometimes they were at odds. Each district had its own particular cocktail of interests vying for power. In District 16, the board was initially dominated by a state assemblyman named Calvin Williams. He was the owner of what was called Black Pearl. Dr. Lester Young is on the New York State Board of Regents, but he started out as a teacher in District 16. Black Pearl was the largest private taxi. taxi. They used to call them gypsy cabs or whatever, wherever it was. He was the largest vendor in central Brooklyn. In those days, few yellow cabs went beyond downtown and midtown Manhattan, certainly not to pick up black folks. Until Lyft and Uber, gypsy cabs were the only taxis that served central Brooklyn, and Black Pearl was a pioneering company among them. Calvin Williams had constituents, all right, and he knew how to mobilize them. And I remember attending a board meeting where Calvin Williams had all his cab drivers show up. And I mean, you can imagine what this looked like. And he had all these guys come out and come into the board meeting because he was trying to have his way. I, so, yeah, there were those kinds of things going on. At that time, District 16 included half of Bed-Stuy, but also most of Bushwick, which back then was predominantly white, mostly Italian-American. And I imagine that all these organized black people must have scared the hell out of the white folks. That might explain why in 1973, parents in Bushwick basically seceded from District 16. They complained to the city that the District 16 board was dominated by black board members from Bed-Stuy. Essentially, these white parents used the same arguments that parents of color had made in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. Their interests were not being represented, and they too deserve community control. So Bushwick was split off into District 32, and New York City's district map has not been altered since. Today, District 16 has the smallest student population in the city. This might have something to do with it. At the same moment that the physical shape of District 16 we know today was being forged, so too was the political identity of the neighborhood. One of the key figures in that identity is Al Van, and his path to prominence ran right through the schools. My name is Albert Van. I call myself a black man uh, in America. Al Van and G2AUC had co-founded the Afro-American Teachers Association here in Bed-Stuy back in 1964. Both of them wound up teaching in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. And after Ocean Hill-Brownsville, while G2 was busy starting up the East, Van started his own political club. The thinking at that time among those of us who were involved in, in the struggle, as it were, a lot, if not most, did not believe in, in electoral politics. They thought that to get involved in the U.S. government to that extent on that level was almost against <laughs> the movement. And so... When I came to the realization that if you wanted to make change in a system, you had to be a part of that system, uh, everybody did not fully agree with that. Nevertheless, in 1973, Al and G2 both ran for school board in District 13, 
which covers the western half of Bed-Stuy. The teachers union tried to get them both kicked off the ballot. They succeeded with G2, but Al made it through. And the school board was just the beginning. Al Van would go on to serve on the state assembly and city council for nearly 40 years. Meanwhile, Van's political club ran candidates for school boards across black Brooklyn. In District 16, which covers the eastern half of Bed-Stuy, one of those candidates was Annette Robinson. It was an exciting environment, a very competitive environment. People were running from all walks of life to the extent that, you know, people got kind of feisty. You know, they got kind of feisty, yeah. They would tear your poster down, challenge your poll workers, your signatures, try to get you kicked off the ballot. You know, the usual stuff. But sometimes that feistiness could get pretty out of hand. I was chairing the meeting at that particular time, and what happened was I I made a ruling, and so one of the board members objected to that. She says, I don't give a F what you say, Annette Robinson. That's what she said to me. And then she came over and she hit me. Wow. She came over and hit me. Yeah, it became the thriller in Manila. (laughs) It really did. And the lady bit me. Yeah, she bit me. I had to go and I went and got a tetanus shot. That's right. It was it was that heated. It was that heated. She bit me. And I was getting ready to knock her out with a chair. That's what I was getting ready to do. And the police came, they ran up on on the stage and said, no, don't do that. That's my personal story. You know, yeah, she was going to get the chair. No, you're not going to do that to me. I've known Annette Robinson for decades. She cuts a rather dignified figure on the Bed-Stuy political scene, so it was fascinating to imagine her getting down and dirty this way. It was an unfortunate incident, and I was quite embarrassed by it, mm. to be standing up in public and I'm presiding over a meeting, and then I'm ending up in a fist fight with another adult. You know, it was not a good look. So the school board politics could get ugly, but there were still a lot of idealists in the system. We understood in the early days that working in the New York City public school system was not about a job. We were part of something and we were gonna show that our kids could in fact do this. Dr. Lester Young started out as a teacher in District 16 in 1969, in the immediate aftermath of the Ocean Hill-Brownsville struggle. So when I came into the system, I'll never forget, I was interviewed by the principal, and the principal said, you're great, I want to hire you. She said, but you got one more interview you got to go through. And I said, what is that? And she took me down to a room, and I was interviewed by a whole committee of parents. And the first question the parents said to me was, what do you know about this community, and why do you want to be here? And so I always understood that my check said New York City Board of Education, but I worked for the community. This kind of direct parent engagement in teacher hiring was actually pretty rare under decentralization. The teachers union fought against anything that would undermine their control. But this was no ordinary school and no ordinary principal. It was PS21, under the leadership of Adelaide Sanford. I knew the power that a liberating education could provide for people who had been oppressed and depressed and and isolated. We first met Dr. Sanford back in episode one. She was one of the first black principals in New York City. During Ocean Hill-Brownsville, Dr. Sanford had helped organize her parents and teachers to sleep in the school building overnight and keep the custodians from locking them out. And we stayed open the whole time, much to the chagrin of the union. She resented how the union continued to protect its teachers from accountability. Nobody talked about why every teacher got a satisfactory rating and the children weren't learning. But there was the unspoken acceptance of the fact that these children really could not learn. 
Dr. Sanford did not accept that her students could not learn. And she didn't accept that she would have to have teachers in her classrooms who believed that. So if she had an unsatisfactory teacher, she would give them an unsatisfactory rating. I began to give U ratings, and no teachers had ever gotten a U rating, regardless to what infraction existed. Every time she gave a U rating, the union would appeal. And every time the union appealed, Dr. Sanford worked overtime to make sure that she had dotted all her I's and crossed her T's. She says she never lost a single case. But what would happen next to that unsatisfactory teacher? That was out of her hands. That was up to the Board of Ed to decide, but they couldn't stay there. They could be sent to another school. They could be sent for training. They could be fired. I understand very few were fired. You could spend years in legal limbo trying to remove a teacher. So most savvy principals and superintendents, rather than fight for that U rating, they would do the opposite of what Dr. Sanford did. They'd give the unsatisfactory teachers excellent recommendations if they agreed to leave and voluntarily transfer to another district. This became known as the Dance of the Lemons. With fictitious recommendations in hand, an unsatisfactory teacher could play musical chairs around the city for years. But the Lemons almost never got fired, only transferred, inevitably to the poorest and brownest districts. Expectations were low for a school like PS21, which served primarily children from the projects. Thanks to Dr. Sanford's insistence on teacher quality and cultural affirmation, her students were doing really well. But whatever magic they were working at PS21 wasn't shared or replicated, even within District 16. When we were given an award for having the highest reading scores of any urban school in the state, the school board, which was all black at that time, voted not to make a public acknowledgement or celebration of that event. What board members told her was that they didn't want the other schools in the district to feel bad because they weren't doing as well as PS21. It was still an aura of competitiveness, which is most unfortunate. And that aura of competitiveness wasn't only between schools within District 16. There was also competition between District 16 and other districts. When a new gifted and talented program opened up at Philippa Schuyler Middle School, very close to District 16 in District 32, a group of parents from Dr. Sanford's school wanted to send their children there. The school board would not permit the children from District 16 to go to District 32, even though they had passed the entrance exam. District 16 didn't want to lose the cream of the crop and the money that went with them. We sued the school board, and we won. Not only did the students from PS21 get to go to Philippa Schuyler, but as a result of the lawsuit, District 16 finally created a gifted program of its own at PSIS 308. No matter who you talk to, everyone agrees that some level of dysfunction was baked into the design of the school system under decentralization. But things only got worse when New York City all but collapsed. After the break. Hi, this is Antonine Pierre, the Deputy Director of the Brooklyn Movement Center. As you know, BMC is a member-led community organization building power with low- and moderate-income Black folks in central Brooklyn. If you want to talk with other listeners about what you've heard on School Colors so far, come meet us in person. We're hosting a discussion group at BMC next Thursday night, October 17th, starting at 6.30 p.m. If you're a parent, don't worry. We'll have childcare. Let us know you're coming by writing to contact at brooklyndeep.org Or, if you can't make it, just hit us up to let us know what you think about the show. Peace! 
How and why New York City almost went bankrupt in 1975 could probably be its own podcast series. Let's see if we can do the short version. New York used to have the most generous welfare state in the country. But over the course of the 1950s and 60s, middle-class white people fled the city by the millions, taking their tax dollars with them. And manufacturers did the same. So by 1975, New York had many, many more poor people to support and much, much less money to do it with. To cover its budget, New York borrowed money like it was going out of style. But then the banks decided to stop lending, so the city needed a bailout from the federal government. And the feds would only swoop in to save the day if New York City agreed to completely change the way it did business. The city budget was put into the hands of a small group of unelected Wall Street types who proceeded to slash and burn city services. If Ocean Hill-Brownsville had exposed the hypocrisy of old-school liberal politics, the fiscal crisis signaled their collapse. If Ocean Hill-Brownsville had undermined the dream of a common public life, the fiscal crisis gutted common public institutions. Tens of thousands of municipal workers were laid off. Public hospitals were closed. CUNY, the city's public university system, began charging tuition for the first time. And $132 million was cut from the public school budget. Almost 30% of the city's teachers, 15,000 people, were laid off. Fewer teachers meant class size went up to 45, 50, in some cases as many as 60 students per class. Here's historian Heather Lewis. It decimates not only teachers, but also leadership, and everyone is just in survival mode. The fact that you have superintendents and teachers and parents actually trying to make something happen under decentralization in the 70s in the midst of of this broader collapse of the city's infrastructure and supports is pretty amazing. Basic maintenance of school buildings, not to mention other neighborhood amenities like sanitation and fire safety, was put off indefinitely. Kids are going to school for half a day. The buildings are falling down. I mean, it's frightening, just that alone, not to say what's actually happening when the kids are there. Hell yeah, it was frightening. And traumatic for me and my entire family. I was in junior high school and have vivid memories of my education being dismantled. Brick by brick, it seemed. Class periods were cut in half and classrooms were crammed with kids. Teachers, gym, music classes, garbage collection disappeared. And any sense of normalcy? Gone. But that was just a half of it. Both my parents worked for the city, which was laying off people left and right. It was the first time I even heard of the term pink slip, and I remember staring, along with my brother and sister, at a letter that my father had received from the Board of Education. We were convinced that my father had been axed. It turned out to be a false alarm, and I hadn't thought about it for many years. But one day, when we were working on this episode, that scene all of a sudden came flooding back, and recalling the fear and anxiety literally brought tears to my eyes. By this time, were you still living in Brooklyn? No. Uh, We had moved to Southeast Queens because my mother thought the neighborhood was too dangerous. And for a while, it seemed like everyone who could get out of Black Brooklyn, well, they got out. Well, you could see that in the census data. The number of children living in District 16 dropped by almost half between 1970 and 1980. We lost almost 30,000 kids in one decade alone. So this is when you saw the first big drop in enrollment in District 16 schools. But it wouldn't be the last. Now, if there's one thing that the school boards were criticized for the most over the years, it was patronage. People getting jobs based on political connections instead of experience or ability. And in the desperate aftermath of the fiscal crisis, there were even more incentives to run the public schools like patronage mills. Dr. Adelaide Sanford explained why. 
You look at District 5 in Manhattan. District 5 was the hiring hall. That was a district where the principal and the superintendent would say, look, it's not about reading scores. It's about hiring people because there was no industry. Look, as long as there have been poor people migrating to New York City, each group has had leaders who use government programs to give out jobs and contracts to their community. And in the 1970s, basically as soon as a generation of black leaders happened to grab a little bit of power, the need to mine public schools for employment was more urgent than ever. Not to totally excuse this kind of thing, but only to point out that when people of color get any kind of power in this country, they have so much more to prove. And Lester Young says the local school boards were kind of set up to fail. They were responsible for hiring principals, for hiring the superintendent, for voting on the budget, for establishing policy, etc. And the question on the table is, well, what was it that we did to build their capacity to do this? The answer is not much. There, there was really no training for boards. It's important to remember that the experiment in community control of schools in Ocean Hill-Brownsville in the late 60s relied on infrastructure established by the federal war on poverty, which created all sorts of social programs and required the participation of the poor. The community control experiment itself was made possible by funding from the Ford Foundation. Most of the board members in Ocean Hill-Brownsville were parents who didn't necessarily have experience with education policy, but the superintendent made it his business to see that they received training. None of these conditions were in place during decentralization. And so in neighborhoods where parents were already well-resourced, well-educated, and more experienced with budgeting and stuff like that, the school boards functioned reasonably well. But school boards in districts like 16 had a heavier lift. In the middle of everything else going to hell, the East seemed to be thriving. In 1976, they outgrew their original home at 10 Claver Place and moved into the Sumner Avenue Armory on what's now Marcus Garvey Boulevard. This armory is massive. It's literally like a castle with these two huge turrets in the front, occupying almost a full city block. Once you got inside, there were classrooms to the left and right and a huge open space down the middle, big enough to hold four full basketball courts, where neighborhood kids, even those who didn't go to Uhurusasa, could still come to play ball after school. It was my 360. Lumumba Bendele. We were there early for school. We would stay for after-school stuff. My parents more than likely had meetings <laughs> after school. We would get home late and do it again. And then we'd be there in the, in the weekends for drumming class, for dance class, for martial arts. But it's not as though the East was insulated from the poverty and violence outside. In the late 1970s, there was a series of high-profile police killings of unarmed black men in Brooklyn. And in response, G2 Way UC co-founded a new organization, the Black United Front. In 1978, he resigned from his leadership of both the East and Uhuru Sasa Shule to focus on the Black United Front. Dr. Shegun Shabaka took over from G2 as executive director of the East. Listen, the government was hostile. We were a black power organization, one of the major black power organizations, and the government in and of itself was hostile to us. We know by the number of agents that came that they planted, that lied about what they saw. To make matters worse, Mayor Ed Koch held a grudge against the East after the Black United Front disrupted his first inauguration at the Brooklyn Museum. He was on the stage, but he couldn't get a word in. And we were yelling, it's fired up, ain't gonna take no more. The chance we had back then. So that put a target on us after that. You follow? But the East's challenges weren't all coming from the outside. 
The East was a big, complicated organization, and they struggled with financial management. We did not take care of our business like we should, especially in a society that hates Black people and don't want to see Black people empowered. As the neighborhood was sinking deeper into poverty, parents had a hard time paying even the modest tuition, so the school couldn't pay its staff. After G2 stepped down from Uhuru Sasashule, the school had four different headmasters in five years. There were conflicts and there was pressure that people didn't want to bear. You know, you're making tremendous sacrifices in terms of pay to build this institution. And so some people just couldn't take it. When Lumumba Bandele was nine years old, in the middle of the school year, he left Uhuru Sasa. He went literally just a couple of blocks down the street to PS44, but it might as well have been another planet. My world was turned upside down. I went from having teachers who I knew intimately. We had, we had small classrooms. They were Kufis and Dashikis. They spoke Swahili. Everybody was sort of related to everybody else. And I went into public school, oddly enough, in Black History Month, the beginning of Black History Month. So It was February 1981. And I walk into this room in this... Uh, Italian woman from Long Island, uh, Miss Pinata, <laughs> was her name. Miss Pinata actually did talk about Black History Month. You know, the usual names, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman. And when I raised my hand to ask, like, about all of the other historic figures and leaders, she didn't know any of the names I was mentioning. They got into an argument about Joseph Sinke, an enslaved West African who led a successful slave revolt on the Spanish ship Amistad. And she said, I don't know about that. I don't think that's true. So my father had to come in <laughs> and set us straight. But that was my introduction to the public school system. But it wasn't all bad. There were some things that I was pleased to see exist at PS44. Back then, the schools were closed for Black Solidarity Day. <laughs> and when we did the color guard for assemblies, the red, black, and green flag was part of that. But it still was not... Uh, an African-centered institution. And I think fundamentally that's what made Sasa what it was, and PS44 was not that. Dr. Adelaide Sanford, the principal at nearby PS21, admired the work that was being done at Uhuru Sasa, but she didn't see it catching on in the public system. I thought that what they did was important, but it wasn't becoming a part of policy. It was so isolated. I mean, uh, what G2 did with the East, that school, and a couple of other independent schools that sprang up. They were localized and they did well, but I didn't see leadership following that. There was no G2 after G2. By this time, nearly all the schools in District 16 had black leadership, but those leaders weren't necessarily change agents. Even though local school districts had some power to set local curriculum, when your success is still measured by a state test, the state test will probably dictate how you spend instructional time. So you have to be willing to do the other pieces before school, after school, weekends, whenever you can, the other pieces that enhance their sense of culture, uh, their sense of legacy, their sense of responsibility. And because a person becomes a black principal doesn't mean that they have those instincts or they're willing to work that hard. Uhuru Sasa closed for good in 1983. The East hung on for a couple more years. Music remained a major draw. We would have, you know, rap artists come through. You know, we had our own cultural rap artist. Brother D was one of them, you know. And you know that. And you know that. He had his song, How You Gonna Make a Black Nation Rise. Educate, agitate, organize. How we gonna make a black nation rise? Gotta agitate, educate, and organize. How we gonna make a black- 
And not just hip hop. You know, at that time, the roots, reggae roots scene was heavy. And on the weekends, oh my God, it was packed with some of the best reggae sets, reggae bands that would come through. Sure, the armory was in disrepair. The city owned the building and they wouldn't fix the roof and the boilers. But for a time, the East was still like an oasis for many young people in the community. This is part of why the East was so important because 80s was crazy. You know, I don't like to define 80s by crack and that, that because it was so much, way so much more than that. But the spaces that we occupied were safe spaces. And so all of the craziness happened outside. But when the craziness on the outside came on the inside, that spelled the end of the road for the East. To offset expenses, the East used to rent out the space to other groups for parties. At one of these parties, a big fight broke out. There were a few stabbings. It made the papers, and then the mayor said, this is the final straw, and he put things in motion to shut it down. We didn't have legal support. You know, I had to go represent the organization. I'm not a lawyer, but we didn't have the resources, and people didn't come to our aid like they should have, given the work that we had put in, you know? It was, uh, it was a difficult time. You've given like 15, 20 years of your life to something. It's not easy. Just walk away and uh, leave it all like that. About 10 years after leaving the East, Fella Barcliffe found herself drawn back to education when she was looking for childcare for her own young daughter. She couldn't find anything that wasn't Eurocentric, down to the picture books and the dolls. I couldn't put her in any of those things, so I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start something. This way I can be close to her myself and also I can create a program kind of that mirrors some of what we were trying to do at Hurusasa. She called her program Little Sun People. And in 2019, Little Sun People is thriving. My own kids went there. And Mama Fella is still the director. I asked her if anything in particular comes to mind that makes her think to herself, yeah, I did good. I guess just being able to stay alive and Functioning for 38 years is a kind of a big deal given the success rate of most black institutions. As someone who runs a black institution myself, I can attest to that. But the East gave us a number of institutions that are still around. The armory was converted into a homeless shelter called Pomoja House. But it's operated to this day by an organization called Black Veterans for Social Justice, which grew out of the East. And the International African Arts Festival, which started out as Uhura Sasa's graduation ceremony, still takes place in central Brooklyn every summer, attracting thousands of people. At its height, Uhuru Sasa Shule was a thriving full-time school for pre-K to 12th grade with a faculty of 20 and more than 300 students. And many people like Cleaster Cotton feel that this place literally saved their lives. The pressure that we went through as children killed many of us. It didn't kill us because our mentors and our teachers, G2 and all of those, we stay close to them. We learn skills that can help us actually make a life. And many of our friends did not make it out of Ocean Hill Brownsville alive. And those who made it out, we will run into them in the street. We can't recognize them because of the toll that life has taken on them because they were a part of the statistics. Bed-Stuy in the 80s was rough. Family income was down, violent crime was up, and the federal government was not inclined to help. Historian Heather Lewis. There is a withdrawal of support for dealing with poverty, for 
creating more equity and we're in a period of time when the focus is on the individual, the focus is on law and order, the focus is on depriving metropolitan areas of resources, beginning of locking people up more. And you could see the consequences in the schools. You actually see a closing of the gap, of the achievement gap between African-Americans, Latinos and whites in the 70s. It's actually beginning to decrease. And then it starts widening, beginning in the 80s, and gets wider and wider. I returned to Central Brooklyn in 1985, fresh out of college. This is when the idea of bets die, do or die, was in its heyday. Okay, I've, I've like heard that expression a lot, but <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to ask, uh, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, for many of us living here, it meant that we were not to be fucked with. But it also meant that you had to watch your step. This is where you'd get your gold necklace snatched, your car vandalized. The murder rate was through the roof. You'd hear gunshots at night and not think twice about it. So why was it like that? It wasn't just Bed-Stuy. It was all of New York. The city had always been known as a place where anything goes. But once the 80s arrived, crack and AIDS added a whole new level of desperation, petty vandalism, and vulnerability. The result was the narrative that the city was predatory, out of control, and that the niggas had taken over. And you needed a sheriff like Giuliani or Bloomberg to come riding into town to put these people back in their place. Let me guess, that's not how you saw it. Nah, because that's white supremacy to me. And what that narrative misses is the vibrancy and the creativity that was born out of this desperation. I mean, remember, hip-hop came to dominate popular culture during this time. Central Brooklyn was the center of New York progressive politics. There were dozens of youth programs, economic development organizations, cultural movements, and a level of activism that doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, I, I know this all kind of sounds nostalgic, and I mean, it's not like our local politicians control the forces of global capital or the mass incarceration machine. But even so, this was a time when I felt that black people actually were running shit here in central Brooklyn. I don't feel that way anymore. On the surface, it may have looked like black people were running the schools, too. But they were still subject to centrally negotiated union contracts, the Central Board of Education bureaucracy, and the authority of New York State. There were boards and they voted on their budgets. However, the decisions about what came to certain districts in terms of budgets was made still at Central. As a teacher and a principal in Central Brooklyn, Dr. Lester Young had always understood that his schools didn't get the same resources as schools in wealthier parts of New York. But when he became an assistant commissioner for the State Department of Education in the late 1980s, he got to see exactly how that happened up close and personal. There's one particular meeting he's never forgotten with the Board of Regents and the commissioner at the time. And he was talking about how we had to redistribute resources and talent in the state of New York. And, and one of the regents at the time raised his hand and said, look, you know, in my heart, I think everything you're saying is correct. He said, but I can't go back to my community unless you make my box bigger than theirs. By this time, one of the regents was Dr. Adelaide Sanford. After retiring from PS21, Dr. Sanford had joined the State Board of Regents, hoping to spread the kind of work she had done as a principal by making changes at the state level to curriculum and teacher training. But she walked away disappointed. Very often the wise are not powerful, and the powerful are not wise. That's a bad combination. 
Back home in New York City, eye-popping stories of malfeasance in the local school board started to pile up in the late 80s and early 90s. We're talking bribes and kickbacks, missing and misappropriated funds, creating totally unnecessary jobs to give to family and friends. Everybody was not corrupt. Annette Robinson served three terms on the District 16 school board before moving on to city council and state assembly. Were there some people that committed some bad acts? Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. That didn't mean that everybody had to be painted with the same brush because it didn't happen everywhere. After working at the state level, Dr. Lester Young came back to Brooklyn to work as the superintendent of District 13 for more than a decade. We're not known for the good. And what they do is they talk about the picture where they caught somebody hoisting a piano out of a school building on a Saturday and said, look, this is what goes on when you let them run the schools. Well, basically what they're saying is that this is what goes on when you let the people in that community run their schools. The most egregious examples of corruption in the school boards came from just a handful of districts. Those districts were not all in black and brown neighborhoods. And no one we interviewed could or would tell us definitively that jobs were bought and sold in District 16. But even if it wasn't corrupt like that, the school board wasn't necessarily effective. At least three times over the course of the 80s and 90s, the chancellor suspended the District 16 board because they couldn't agree on a new superintendent. In 1998, one school board member was arrested for threatening another with a knife. Later that year, seven schools in the district were removed from the school board's direct control in an effort to turn them around. But the story we tell about decentralization flattens the whole system into the worst of its failures. Like, we tried giving power to black and brown people after Ocean Hill Brownsville, but they couldn't handle it. And the schools were overrun with corruption and chaos. You know, I used to be a history teacher, and this really reminds me of the way that most schools used to teach about Reconstruction. We tried giving power to black people after the Civil War, but they couldn't handle it, and the government was overrun with corruption and chaos. Right. Forget about the details. This is what happens when you let those people run things. For decades, this narrative about Reconstruction was used to justify Jim Crow. In other words, to keep black people out of and away from power. It's not a perfect analogy, but it does seem like a certain narrative about decentralization was used in a similar way, to justify completely dismantling whatever bits and pieces of the dream of community control still lingered in the old local school boards. Power corrupts, tends to corrupt. We know that. One of the heroes of community control, Al Van. So what you do is you try and create a system that is prevent or make it very difficult for that to occur. You don't throw out the system because you can find some evidence in some places that they were corrupt and that they got their son a job. To some people that who have had nothing in that opportunity, they would take advantage of that. But clearly, whatever corruption that existed in the decentralized school system was minor, minor, minor compared to the corruption that exists in the mayoral control system or in the so-called centralized system prior to decentralization. In fact, in 1991, a state commission recommended more local accountability, not less. They said the districts were still too big, the bureaucracy was still too powerful, important decisions were still being made too far away from schools and parents. They said there should be 50 districts instead of 32, smaller districts with an independent financial officer to oversee each one. But instead, the pendulum swung in the opposite direction. And I think that we have to go back and we have to begin to ask some critical questions. We have to ask ourselves what we fought for in 1968 around school governance. Is that still an issue today? 
And I think it is. I'm not necessarily suggesting we got to go back to what it was, but I don't see how going from a democratic process to where you have a mayor who controls everything and doesn't have to answer to anyone and just does stuff, how does that work? The Board of Education is intrinsically incapable of meeting the educational needs of our children. It must go. In 2002, the New York State Legislature gave nearly total control over the New York City school system to the new mayor, Michael Bloomberg. There are simply too many cooks over at 110 Livingston Street, each with their own competing recipe, which produces a political stew rather than a sound education. We do not need more commissions. We do not need more studies. We have waited too long for change. It's time to act. Ultimately, decentralization was this kind of in-between system where there were local boards, but people didn't necessarily feel close to them or empowered by them. So by the time Bloomberg said, we're going to get rid of this completely, it doesn't work, there was not much of an upswell of people saying no. Rightly or wrongly, the public has clearly said enough. They are saying, read our lips, eliminate the Board of Education and the local school boards, then give us control over our schools through the mayor. At least one veteran of the community control movement was none too pleased, G2 Wayusi. G2 was never a fan of decentralization, but mayoral control was not the answer in his opinion. Here he is in 2009. Look at this mess that we are now. This so-called mayoral control. Look at this mess. In the years since leaving Uhura Sasashule in the East, G2 had returned to the public school system, serving as an assistant principal in Bed-Stuy for many years. Under Bloomberg, both Junior High School 271, the flagship institution of community control, where G2 was a social studies teacher back in the day, and Junior High School 258, where he finished out his career, were closed by the city. And it's going to get worse, believe me. Next four years, it's going to get worse. What he's referring to is that when this interview was conducted, Mayor Bloomberg had just been elected to a third four-year term in office. But four years later, G2 would be gone. He died in May 2013. We're still on the struggle, okay? We're still on and in the struggle. That's the most important thing. An old uh, mentor of mine used to say, the struggle is my life. And at the time, I didn't understand what she was talking about, but I understand it now. And I would say that that's the way I feel about me. You know, the struggle is my life. And the struggle continues on the next episode of School Colors. The faces was like, District 16's here? Like... Oh my goodness. Some of these schools, they look like monsters, you know, like, just bad. I'm not sure parents want control. I don't think they want to manage. They want us to be like puppets, put our heads down when they say to do stuff, but we're not having it. They looking at me like I'm crazy. I feel like I was robbed. What's happening by default is that the district is going to disappear. School Colors is produced and written by Mark Winston Griffith and Max Friedman. Editing and sound design by Elise Blenner-Hassett. Production associate, Jaya Sundaresh. Original music by Avery R. Young and The Deacon Board. Additional music in this episode by Farrell Sanders, Asaseya Cultural Arts Foundation, Brother D with Collective Effort, The Black Eagles, Chris Zabriskie, Tynus, and Blue Dot Sessions. Archival material courtesy of WNYC and Steve Breyer at the CUNY Graduate Center. Special thanks to Harold Anderson, Sharon Dunn, 
Norm Fruchter, Lena Gates, Colleen Stonebrook, and Dr. Renee Young. School Colors is a production of Brooklyn Deep. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at B-K-L-Y-N-D-E-E-P. You can find more information about this episode, including a transcript, at our website, schoolcolorspodcast.com. Brooklyn Deep is part of the Brooklyn Movement Center, a member-led organizing group in Central Brooklyn. Remember, you can join us at the Brooklyn Movement Center on Thursday night, October 17th, to discuss what you've heard so far. Write to contact at brooklyndeep.org to RSVP or just to tell us what you think of the show. You can also support School Colors by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, sharing on social media, or just telling a friend. We'll be back in two weeks, so keep your ears open for Episode 5 on Friday, October 25th. Until then, peace. Peace.